Good morning, everyone. How are you this morning? Good. You're smiling, which is lovely. Um, I was at a conference in Barcelona on Tuesday, and it was a really multicultural audience, and some of them were really smiling, and some of them were Danish, and they weren't. And it was quite, it was quite upsetting. Like, are you alive? Are you alive? Um, so today, uh, <laughs> I love the Danes, but you're very serene, which translates as any number of things, which could be very ambiguous and quite scary for a speaker. Um, so today I feel like a bit of an interloper, because I'm going to be talking about the psychology of us and your customers, uh, and the psychology of online persuasion. So I'm going to talk about the three systems brain, that's the primal, emotional, and rational systems, and then some key takeaways with some time for questions at the end. Does that sound all right? Yes? Okay. So quick introduction, I am very active on Twitter. If you have any questions, you can tweet to me. Those are my websites. Um, in 2012, I released a book, this book, which looked at combining the best knowledge that we have from a whole variety of research disciplines, looking at how we get persuaded to do stuff online. So why is it that when you visit Amazon, for instance, you find it to be a seamless experience? What are the things that they're doing to nudge your behaviors in particular directions? And how can we, as people who are either designing websites or apps or software or anything that has sort of any kind of user interface, how can we apply the behavioral sciences in such a way that we create more persuasive and engaging and beneficial services and products? Um, these are some of the people I've worked with. And in 2011, I coined the term web psychology and defined it as the empirical study of how our online environments like websites, apps, and platforms, influence our attitudes and behaviors. The reason it's useful is because it provides us with a psychological toolkit and makes tangible the kind of stuff and research that helps us to design more persuasive environments like websites, apps, user experiences, and software. And it draws from a whole variety of different fields. Things like, for instance, human-computer interaction, which some of you may be familiar with. You've got cross-cultural psychology, which is fascinating. You've got user experience, social psych, marketing, digital humanities. There's a whole field now around digital ethnography and anthropology. You've got neuroesthetics, which is how you respond to visual stimuli at a brain activity level. Um, cognitive psych, behavioral economics, neuroscience, persuasive technology, the fantastic work of people like BJ Fogg and, and others. Basically, it sort of tries to bring in all of these different disciplines to give you a roadmap as to what discoveries are being made in these fields that we can apply in our work. So I apply it principally in marketing practices across a range of different industries, but also in the development of websites and user experiences. And the first thing that you have to understand about the people that you're designing your software for is their psychological context. And this breaks down broadly into three main key areas. The first is universal psychological context. So, all of us here today from different you know, backgrounds and genders and personality and ages, all of us typically will want to feel the need or want to feel as though we belong with our peers, with our family. So it's that sense for community, for tribal identity. That's one of the universal factors psychologically. Another one might be something like social validation. So what is it that's so compelling about getting retweets or getting likes on Facebook? These are binary actions. You either retweet or you don't. You either like or you don't. But the impulse, which is to get validation from our peers, is very strong and is ubiquitous across all humans, which is why software that taps into that is going to be highly effective across cultures, ages, personalities, etc. You with me so far? Yeah? OK. So the first layer is universal psychological context. The second is cultural. So we have at least one Dane in the house. Hello. <laughs> have we got people here who are not from the UK? So from Europe? Europe, hands up. America? So North America? South America? Okay, um, Australia? Middle East? India? Hello. Okay, so we've got a fairly good variety of cultures in this room. Now, when you're designing software for people, especially when it's going to be something that many people can use across different countries, Whatever you're doing, you have to make sure that you understand a little bit about the cultural lens. What's culturally motivating your particular audiences? Are there segments? So for instance, um, a professor named Geert Hofsted from the Netherlands spent 40 years, his entire professional academic life, looking at dimensions for personality for countries. So there are six main dimensions. You can go to his, his website, geerthofsted.com. 
And he found that actually there are significant differences, even within European countries that are next to each other, like France and Spain, that we might otherwise conflate mistakenly, that will influence our motivations and behaviors online. So you have to look at the cultural context. The third layer, which is the one that I'm most interested in, is individual, so personality differences, gender differences, age differences, so generational differences. So for instance, a friend of mine who's a university professor in social psychology over in Texas, his name is Sam Gosling, fantastic bloke, actually he's a Brit, um, he does some really weird research in animal psychology and in the behavioral traces that we leave behind in our environment, so physical spaces. So he did one piece of research where he looked at how your positioning in an auditorium like this can indicate aspects of your personality without your necessary awareness. So he found that typically, people who tend to sit on the front couple of rows in an auditorium, this is done on students, but it applies here, tend to score higher for extroversion. This does not mean you are naturally just an extrovert. In psychology, there are no silver bullets, and you have to take each jigsaw piece as a clue to the wider picture, okay? So context is king, and so is testing. But you could say with fairly good accuracy that you guys are probably likely to score higher in extroversion. Now, for those of us who like to sit along the exits, uh, stewardess motions here, and towards the edges of auditoriums, you tend to score higher in neuroticism. And it, again, don't go away thinking, oh shit, I'm a neurotic. You are not necessarily a neurotic or an extrovert. We're a lot more complex than that. But again, it's context specific. So like I go on planes, I score very low for uh, neuroticism, and there's no way that I'm not sitting right next to an exit on an aisle seat because if shit hits the fan, I'm getting out and everyone else will be too slow. So there's also a strategy <laughs> element there. But you have to think about the personality motivators of your customers. So is the software that you're designing going to have a better natural fit for people who are extroverted and open-minded? Will they want to explore or do they need more structure? Are they comfortable with ambiguity or does there need to be a transparent process to guide them through specific actions? All of these things must be taken into consideration if you want to really succeed and engage with your customers. Okay, so that's a kind of a psych thing. Um, in all the research that I did, I found that really there were three key secrets to being successful online, or three cornerstones, if you, if you will, on which everything else kind of hangs. The first of this is to know who you're targeting. So that talks about the psychological context that we just looked at. The second, once you understand who you're targeting, you have to be able to apply psychological principles to communicate persuasively, which sounds easy, but it's really sort of if you split it into two component parts. So the first most crucial aspect of communicating persuasively is understanding all those subconscious things that we tend to pick up on, obviously without realizing them, that people use to inform their decision as to whether or not they can trust you. These are things like the kind of clothing that you wear. Am I mirroring your kind of clothing? Today, I'm not. You're wearing t-shirts and jeans, and if I'd have wanted to fit in a bit more to create more of a rapport, I would have mirrored that choice of clothing. The kind of language that you use. You guys are in software development. I'm not technically in software. I don't know the acronyms that you might use. But if you're pitching to clients, you have to understand and mirror their language. For instance, if you're thinking about increasing sales, Everyone understands that, right? We all understand that. I work both across several industries, but both in marketing and conversion rate optimization. So in marketing, you'd say, okay, we want to generate leads. They're talking about sales, but the language they use is leads. In conversion rate optimization, which is basically increasing sales on websites, they use the term conversions. So they mean exactly the same thing, but if I switched it around and said conversions to marketers and leads to conversion rate optimizers, they'd be like, what are you talking about? And these are things that we overlook routinely on a day-to-day -day basis that can have a crucial impact on the way in which we're received. Other things include things like gesturing, body language. Um, I'll touch briefly on body language. So I know that we're all quite evolved and we're now using this amazing technology and creating tools and all sorts of things, but the fundamentals still apply. When we are looking to see if we can trust people or not, we will only expose our most vulnerable areas, which typically is the ventral area here, so the neck, which is easy to snap, so I'm told. I don't, a friend of mine was in the sad. <laughs> oh, shit. So we are not friends anymore. Um, so the neck, um, things like the heart, the lungs, the digestive area. If you get stabbed or injured here, you're going to die pretty quickly if it's severe. You know, break a leg and you can hobble around. So when we're looking at things that we like or people that we trust or products that we trust, we tend to expose this ventral area because it's a sign of feeling comfortable, familiar, familiarity, safety. 
if we don't like stuff that's being said or the person that's coming up to us, we will tend to close off. So this is the idea of open body language, open hands, open ventral, and then closed body language. And you can actually test this. There's a kind of quick, weird thing that you can do. Do you guys spend much time in boardrooms with civil chairs? Some? Okay. So one thing you can do, if you're really bored out of your skull at the next meeting, which most of us are, unless you get one of those blah, blah, blah cards, which I'm going to implement with my customers. Um, if you are bored in a meeting and you're in swivel chairs, look to see what the person is saying that's speaking. And then look around the room and see if people are blading. This is called blading when you move your uh, this area. If people are blading towards that person or away. People will tend to blade towards that person when they agree with what they're saying and blade away when they don't. You can also do this in boring date situations. So if you're out with your mates and you're thinking, oh God, I'm really bored, let's go home. Just spot a couple on a date or friends and look at where their feet are pointing. We're taught to sort of lie with our faces. You know, put on a brave face, your grandma's coming over to you. Great. And the rest of the body language is going, hi, grand. Um, but you can, put, you can check their feet. And if they're consistently pointing away from the person they're with, chances are that person is not engaged. So there's always things that you can look at, but we subconsciously look at in things like videos and in things like images, which you use in your marketing material on your websites to sell your products that you'll be sending out to your customers. So think carefully about all of these cues. Um, okay, the second part of communicating persuasively is adapting your message to the medium or channel that you're using. So professional on LinkedIn, you've got you know informal on Twitter, etc. You get the drift. Okay. Once you understand the psychography of your target audience, so you know who you're targeting, and you've decided how best to communicate persuasively with them, you can then implement psychological persuasion techniques to sell with integrity. Now, this third and final point is really, really important. Um, I know that yesterday, Kathy Sierra did a really interesting talk on motivation, and I think you're talking quite a bit about ethics and coercion. This is a really important conversation that you should always have whenever you're implementing this. Um, persuasion is inherently a very gray area. And I want to ask you, what do you think is the difference between persuasion on the one hand and manipulation on the other? So what's persuasion? Your personal experience of what persuasion might be. Say again. It's an opt-in. It's an opt-in. So you have choice. Lovely. Yes, it's an opt-in. What else? You focus on benefits. Yes, so you're saying someone... This is a persuasive product because X, Y, and Z, and you can gain these benefits. Yes, lovely. What else? How does it make you? Facts and logic. Facts and logic. We'll come back to that. Yes, that can make up a part of it. Facts and logic. I would say that persuasion is more emotional than that, but yes, you can certainly use that to furnish a persuasive argument. <laughs> yes. Bingo. Yes. So if any, I don't know if you all heard that. It comes from a place where the person persuading you has your best interests at heart. And someone else said trust. You said trust. Yes. Excellent. Trust. So basically, you're looking at a situation with persuasion in which there's mutual benefit. What about manipulation? How do you feel when someone manipulates you? Yeah. Deceived. I feel violated. I know that's a quite an aggressive physical way to describe it. But when you've been deceived or violated, you're not going to give that person your business. And so when you're using persuasion principles, um, you have to be very careful. And the way that I always like to frame it, I do a podcast called The Good, The Bad, and The Dirty, and I talk with people about persuasion and stuff. And I had the, the, the chance to interview Robin Dreek, who's the head of behavioral analysis at the FBI. So this is like heavy shit. And I said to him, what's the difference for you between persuasion and manipulation? And he said, it's intent. So going back to what you said, if you have the intention for mutual benefit, for win-win, then that's positive use of persuasion. So that's what I would always say. If you're going to use any of these principles, if it doesn't benefit your customer, don't do it. You're on the wrong side of the line. We're not black hat. Okay, so diving into the three-system frame. Before I start, I must caveat this. The brain is highly, highly complex. I have friends who are in neuroscience who are discovering more about what they don't know than what they do. Um, but what we're going to do is look at this model based on the triune brain model, which is sort of a neurophysiological model that looked at you know, the lizard brain, which evolved first, and then the, uh, the emotional brain, the mammal brain that evolved next, and then finally the neocortex. As a model, it's very, very useful because it enables us to understand the hidden motivations of the people that we're trying to reach so that we can design more persuasive experiences, software, marketing, platforms, etc. But it is a metaphorical model that's designed to understand motivations and systems to engage. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. So primal, emotional, and rational, and we will start with the primal. I have a feeling you will like 
which is the guy over there, the, the rational one, but we can look at that later. Okay, so the primal system, common to all animals, looks after your basic vital functions. It's subconscious. So while you're sitting here, you're not thinking, right, well, I need to send X, Y, and Z enzymes down to my stomach to digest that croissant that I had for breakfast, or I don't have to worry about my heart beating or sitting up straight, whatever. Your, brain's, your brain and your body are looking after all of those things for you. The primal system always also allows you to identify whether things in your environment or your environment in a whole is risky to you or if it's safe for you. So it's the freeze, fight, and flight response that's related to this. It also activates for cues for sex and for food. And online, this interesting, sort of some weird, interesting psychological stuff that happens. So cues for sex, we're not going to look at pornography or nudity, but there are some other things that translate from this basic primal system. So what do you notice about these three images? What's going on? The middle one's symmetrical, and also the one on the right. So I'm going to give you a quick, um, quick bowl of the room. So hands up, who of you personally? There's no right or wrong answer. This is just personal preference. So hands, hands up if you prefer aesthetically, you find most attractive the original image on the left. Okay, some of us. Yep. What about the middle one? And what about the right one? Interesting. Wow, you're an odd sample. You're the first one, <laughs> but then you're in software. So I would have thought you'd be more rational. So actually, you should like symmetry more because you're more process-driven. Oh, we could do some experiments with this. All right. Um, okay. Right. My, okay. So suspend your disbelief and your personal preferences for the lady on the left. In the normal population with a bell curve distribution, you're in one of the tails, guys. <laughs> Um, most of the populace would find the symmetrical faces, one or the other, more aesthetically pleasing. And the reason this is, is that symmetry is a cue or a, or a signal of sexual fitness. So those people that we find most attractive day to day, people, well, day to day, so you don't meet them day to day, people like Angelina Jolie's and Brad Pitt's of this world, um, tend to be more attractive to us because they're very symmetrical. So there's less chance of genetic disease. So if you're going to put yourself and meet up with another human, which is risky at the best of times, you want to make sure that your progeny have the best chance of survival. This is one of the ways in which we assess that chance. Now, what's weird about this is that this sort of very human, um, sexually specific preference also maps onto stuff that we can't meet with, like architecture. Although there are some people that like, like they fall in love with things like Eiffel Towers and stuff. Very strange. Anyway, so it falls into things like preferences for symmetrical architecture, for websites, geometric shapes, abstract paintings, etc. So although the primal system has this bias, it translates across all this stuff that's unrelated. Okay, images of food tend to be very um, appealing to the primal system, which is why contexts like this, where you're creating a story or a, an environment, tend to be very seductive. This is for Harrods. Um, motion. We talk a lot, certainly in, in website design, about focused eye attention, so eye gaze studies, etc., which are fantastic as one tool in your toolbox, but they only measure focused attention, which is limited. They don't look at things like peripheral vision. And the primal system is king of peripheral vision, which is why these things are so hard not to look at. So you've got baby wombat, baby duckling. Um, it's also why, <laughs> I mean, it's the gift that just keeps giving, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so we just leave those running. Darn it. We've got puppies coming later. Um, <laughs> it's also, have you guys seen that um, one weird belly fat tip? And it's that black and white thing, and it's a woman who's grabbing her belly rolls. And they showed it just after Christmas to punish anyone with an appetite. And it basically, it's sort of a white gif and a black line drawing. And it's basically this woman who's kind of, her belly gets bigger and then smaller and bigger and smaller. It's moving. And at the top, it says, one weird tip to melt belly fat. Okay, so the number of psychological triggers in there are unreal. So weird, weird is like a psychological tri trigger word. Um, if you use clickbait, if you're using numbers, that also gets you. But more than anything else, it's the visual that gets us to look. Your, your peripheral vision can't not pay attention to it, which is why it's so effective. Another way in which you can engage the primal system is to, and this is especially important for you guys because you are so good at abstract stuff and like conceptual processes, is to make your message, your product, your service, your marketing, everything that surrounds what you do that's customer facing, make it contrasting and concrete. Make it easy for the primal mind to understand instantly. Yes, we can understand abstract thoughts, but if you want your message delivered within the shortest and most impactful sort of amount of time, then you have to use this principle. What is this advert showing you? What's it an advert for? What are they trying to sell? <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. I th 
Well, it would be nice if they were, but no, not puppies. It's something so much more banal than that. What are they trying to sell with this, with this advert? A vacuum cleaner. And what does this message tell you? What's, what's the contrast, A to B, and then the concrete message, the story that they're giving you? Suction. Okay, and how do you know about suction? Yeah, so you've got poor little sexy ugly puppy over here with the wrinkles in its natural state, looking resplendent, and then zero wrinkle puppy because it sucked all the wrinkles out. Apart from the fact this is really quite macabre when you actually think about how that would have to happen. Um, I'm sure Petter would have something to say about that. Uh, it, gives your, it gives your primal system a really clear, concrete, tangible, and entertaining idea of what the product does. You're never going to vacuum your dog. Or maybe you do. I don't know. But certainly, hopefully, it's never going to do that to it. The point is they've taken something really banal, not very sexy, and made it attractive and concrete. <laughs> I don't know, that was pretty high strength, wasn't it? Jesus. It's like wind time, it's like blur, or no, you'd have to suck from behind and all your hair would come out. Oh, right. So, okay. Um, also, this other thing, peak end rule, which you can apply everywhere. Have you ever had this experience, I'm going to start from this side, okay, this experience where you're going to book a holiday on TripAdvisor or Expedia or something, and it's in the low season, you're going to go with your, you know, with your, your lover or your friend or your mum or yourself or whatever. And it's a little treat. You book on, you get there, and it's kind of a bit, mm, it's a bit mess, the whole experience. It's low season, they've got renovators in, the kitchen's kind of closed, the manager's away, and it's not brilliant, but it's not bad. So you go through day one, day two is more of the same, so is day three, and by day four, you're kind of a bit fed up. So the evening of day four, the managing director comes back and she says, look, we're really sorry, this has been quite a bland experience for you, pretty mediocre. We pride ourselves on a higher level service. But we realize your experience hasn't matched up to this. What I'm going to do, I'm going to give you um, a token for a free dinner in a Michelin-starred restaurant, which is fabulous, and you will get put into the presidential suite at our local five-star sister hotel. Like, that happens in real life, but just pretend. So you have this amazing evening, um, and then you go home, and then you go to, to rate it on TripAdvisor or whatever. Now, being logical people, um, one would say that those first four days, up until that change, were identical and objectively exactly the same whether you had a different end experience or not, wouldn't you? They're exactly the same. They're exactly, exactly the same element of medio medio uh, mediocrity. But by virtue of changing your final experience, of making it really positive, your interpretation of the entire experience will be highly colored by that final bit, no matter how logical and rational you are. It does, because we're, we're that way. And psychologically, you call this sort of weird bias the peak end rule. So we will recall an entire experience and color it and judge it based on the peaks, whether they're really high experiences of happiness and joy and delight, or absolute damnation and doom and gloom and exasperation, but then also what happens at the very end. So the peaks and the end will color the whole experience. Now, translate that to a piece of software that you're using to, to reach a particular goal, or my preferred example is on a website. It's been found by research that when you're trying to pay for something, it activates a lot of the same areas of the brain that are active when you're in physical pain. It is physically painful for us to pay for shit that we need, right? So, you've got a massive funnel of people, they're coming into your website, they're gonna buy your product, they're gonna buy, people ping off the shoot, blah, 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 you get to a tiny little hallowed percentage at the end, 1% or 3% if you're lucky. <coughs> these people have plowed through the pain of going through all of these different clicks, they're going to give you their money, they're in physical pain thinking about it, and then what do you do on the final checkout page? You punish them with an extraordinarily long form, asterisks with all the mandatory bits they need to fill in, and then you're giving them all these frustrating bits that they don't know how to do. So things like classic postcode. You can either put it in one field or in two. If you're selling to people in different parts of the world, people have different cultural behaviors for filling those bits in. So what happens after you've got the third or fourth error message on that checkout page? You leave, you're already in pain, you're not gonna get punished for trying to give someone your money. Really simple, but it's a horrendous peak end rule. It's a peak because it's shit and it's right at the end, you're not gonna go back to the website and buy their services. However, one really, really subtle um, and sort of primal intervention, if you like, that was tested by some of my psychologist peers in the Netherlands. When you are giving people those forms, first of all, reduce the length if you can, but secondly, instead of the asterisks highlighting all the mandatory field, unless it's like a time-restricted thing, which is context-specific. If they've got enough time, just highlight the ones that are optional, because it feels less punitive. And the second thing, when they've finished a complete field, give them a green tick 
I know it sounds ludicrously simple, but what does it tell you if you're doing that? Yes, and also it's telling you, look, I know this is small, but we appreciate that you're going through this trouble. You're saying to people, thank you, in a tiny way. It's positive reinforcement, and it's a positive way to end the experience. They will consider the whole experience much more positive due to that tiny intervention. Okay, that's just for me, because I like chocolate cake. Um, scarcity. Okay. <laughs> I know, a little hidden gem. Okay, so the scarcity principle is another way to initiate or engage with the primal system when you're designing stuff. So there was, psychologists are quite a weird breed. We like to experiment on people, as you probably know. And there was an experiment that was conducted in the 1970s in America, where a professor decided to look at how people responded to scarcity. He got two jars of cookies, both exactly the same kinds of cookies, right? Jar number one on your left was full. Jar, jar number two on your right was half empty. So if you're walking into this room and I had these cookies, I shall do this one day and then take, uh, take the experiment further. If I gave you the one on the left, how many of you think that you would rate it as more tasty, the cookie that you eat, and perhaps more exclusive or whatever? No? Some of you? Okay, couple. How many of you think that you'd probably prefer the one in the emptier jar? And how many of you are thinking, I'm not answering this, it's so trick? Yeah, okay, most of you. Snickers, yeah, I know. All right, so logically, rationally, what we suppose the answer would be is the one that's full. Why? Oh, because it's fresher, because it looks like it's been replenished re recently, blah, blah, blah. What you actually find, and we're terrible at identifying motivations for our behaviors, what you actually find is that the vast population, the majority, overwhelmingly, of people who tried the cookies, the same cookies, rated the ones in the empty jar as more delicious, fresh, blah, blah, blah. Why? Because of scarcity. If other people got there first, there must be an, an inherent preference for that. Therefore, it must be better, more valuable. And we do this with all things. We do it with diamonds. We limit the stock of availability of diamonds to create um, enhanced scarcity. So this works across all different domains. You also find it on websites. This is just a theme. I don't know if any of you use WordPress or love or hate. I love WordPress. Um, a theme to give you conference um, uh, events so you can have like a countdown. Don't miss the last seat here. Again, it's principle of scarcity at play. This one's fantastic as an example, horrible for your bank account. Do any of you know Ashika? The ladies in the room and a couple of gents. Uh, right, so I used to know Ashika and then it just got too expensive, so I stopped. But basically, they use the principle of scarcity in two very simple but very effective ways. Number one, top right-hand corner, there is a little alarm clock. It's an alarm clock, there's a reason for that. Um, and it says sale closes in and then it gives you a countdown. So here it says four days, 14 hours. So you check this on a Wednesday, because it's shown typically that we have a slump on a Wednesday afternoon, which is when we're most likely to go online and shop. So you check it out on Wednesday. Oh, I've got four days, 14 hours left, plenty of time, no urgency whatsoever. Trundle through the week. You get to the weekend, glass of wine, kids are in bed or whatever, and you think, oh, I'm just going to do a bit of retail shopping. I'm going to go back to the website. Except now, there's only one hour left. You think, oh, shit, I've got to buy something. So you're looking. You don't need to buy anything. You're looking and you see, okay, well, there's only three left of this item. Well, I'd better check to see if there's anything else on the page that I want. And they do it so that you scroll. So you're scrolling the whole way down. The other thing they do, which is interesting, um, they don't, uh, depending on your screen resolution, I think it works across most devices and screens, they make sure that you can see part of the next one down. It's the Gestalt principle. If it's not closed off, then we'll keep scrolling to get completion. Trick for if you want to get people to scroll down. Anyway, so you keep scrolling and scrolling. You get to the bottom, and you realize that everything at the bottom sold out. Shit, better go back up to the top. You've spent 30 minutes. You go back up, and the item that you thought you wanted is now reserved in big red capital letters. Oh, so you've gone to all that trouble. It's half an hour left, and the item's been reserved by someone else. However, the other person, much to your, well, you don't know about this, they're checking out through the long process. There's a time restriction. They get to the final page. They haven't optimized it. Massive long form. They don't know what to fill in. All these error messages popping up. They don't fill it in in time. They lose the item out of their basket. And then suddenly, you get to buy some shit that you never needed. Right. So the idea is this is engaging the primal system, getting you to feel this sense of urgency and of scarcity and of value so that you will sort of react to it in an impulsive way and buy stuff that you don't need. Very, very useful. I would probably say that this kind of website appeals to people who are more extroverted and like that dopamine hit, kind of like you get on eBay, but anyway. Right, so far so good. Primal system covered, so to speak. At least introduced, I should say. Okay, good. So the second system that I want to talk with you about is the emotional system. This is related to the limbic system. It's ancient and automatic, um, and it's where you'll find the little almond-shaped amygdala. Now, in popular psychology, or in media, really, the amygdala gets kind of maligned as being the seat of fear and racism and prejudice in the brain. 
it is um, implicated in all of these things, but it's also more fascinating than that. It activates when there are elements in our surroundings that are relevant to our current situation. So ladies, if you are ovulating, research has found that you'll be a lot more prone to seek out men who are a bit more rough and tough with tattoos and all sorts of piercings. Um, and if, you're, if this is relevant for you because you're ovulating, the amygdala will probably activate. Um, also, interestingly, when we're ovulating, we tend to wear more reds and pinks. So guys, if you are looking to not get your wife or missus or girlfriend pregnant, stay away when she's wearing red or pink. Just a rule of thumb. You might want to use actual protection. This is not a sex talk. <laughs> Please edit that out. That was a bit too much information. The next book is on sex ed, people. Okay. Um, uh, shit, right. Um, <laughs> okay, regain composure. Um, okay, so trust cues. So the amygdala also scans for clues in people's faces to assess whether we can trust one another or not. It's also where you find the thalamus which is like the grand central station of emotional processing in your brain. So all the emotions that you feel will get processed here. Happiness, sadness, disgust, excitement, etc. You'll also find this system linked to the ventral tegmental area, which is where you get a huge amount of dopamine packed neurons. So things, uh, dopamine is kind of the system that's the wanting system, that seeks out exciting rewards. It's the one that, that fires every time you get an external trigger, like a push notification on your phone, or a haptic trigger, like something buzzes, and you've got to see what happens. You get a little spike. Um, so that's reward-seeking. And how this plays out um, in software, online, in marketing, in our environments, uh, the first thing that I want to look at is how it plays out with empathy and related mirror neurons. So in 1992, Professor Rizzolatti and his colleagues at the University of Parma in Italy conducted some research with these little macaques monkeys, and they wired them up to an EEG machine to see their brain activity patterns to study hand and mouth sort of motor neurons actions. And what they found was when they witnessed this little monkey eating um, a particular food, they would get a certain reading. Now they left the monkey strapped up, wired up, and as often is the case in science, some of the best discoveries happen by accident. So they left it wired up and the researcher ate some food himself. And what they found was that when the researcher ate the food, the brain activity was mirroring what it had done before when the monkey had eaten the food. So it was almost sympathizing the action of the researcher. They thought, this is a bit weird. So they carried out some more studies, and they found that, generally speaking, when we see or witness another person or another being execute a movement or go through an experience that is relevant to us, 10% of our motor neurons will fire in sympathy. Mirror neurons this is what they're called. They mirror. Which is how some of this social learning takes place. So guy on the left sticks out tongue, baby macaque sticks out tongue. So it's that impulse to learn and to connect. The reason this is so important in everything that we do that's customer-facing is because empathy is a building block of human interaction. It's how we learn. It assists us in mind-reading and allowing people to understand and to share the feelings of others. And if you're creating software that's going to solve a problem, the principal thing that you need to be able to do is show that you understand the problem of your customers and also the emotional context in which it sits. It's also why, and I'm really sorry, chaps, about this next one, it's also why these sorts of videos are so darkly compelling. Okay, <laughs> so let me do a quick poll. How many of you, put your hand up if you're a woman. It's a female persuasion, right. Now, how many of you ladies, myself included, winced or felt some kind of physical discomfort watching that? Yeah, most of us. Now, we are not equipped in the same way that our male compatriots are equipped. And yet, all of us in this room, I would say, probably had some kind of physical response to watching that video, didn't we? Did anyone not have a physical response? Okay. You. Okay. <laughs> you didn't watch it. So you were smart. You were employing strategy to not experience the pain. Now, what's interesting with these sorts of things is that we're kind of on a spectrum. For everything, it's a spectrum. Um, some of us are a lot more highly empathetic than others. Some of you, when you even heard the sound of like the crunching, looked away because you knew what was going to happen. And some of us actually winced and bladed away, you know, saying about covering the ventral areas. That's basically your mirror neurons kicking in. So we're talking about abstract concepts, but they have real, tangible, physical ramifications and impact. Now, I'm not saying that you should do this for your software, like our software will help you not get kicked in the bollocks, but, unless it does, which is amazing, but you can use a more subtle version of this. 
um, to create that emotional engagement with people, to log into that empathy. And this is to identify the wider positive impact that your software or your product has on the community. A great example of this, this is actually products given goods company. They have um, an impact map, community impact map. So you go on to buy stuff, and it shows you, again, remember how concrete is more persuasive, it shows you the impact of the product that you're going to buy. So where it's been bought, by whom it's been created, so this is in Oregon in the US, it's going to provide that person in Oregon with job and vocational training, that's tangible. And then if you go to the final page, so you're not even looking at the map, they remind you again how your, uh, your product purchase creates a wider positive impact. They say story and impact, who you're helping, what it's doing to help them, how and where. So you're creating that sense of a wider positive impact and emotional engagement by creating a story. So if you want to do that, this is the question that I would ask yourself. So how does purchasing your product or using your service translate into a greater impact that is worth celebrating? Okay, so we touched on body language when we were looking at how to communicate persuasively. This is crucial when you're using any form of visual communication. How many of you use images in the selling of your products or services on your website? How many of you don't? A couple of you, okay, interesting. Right, so if you are using images, this is your absolute golden opportunity to make sure that you're instilling trust, that you're creating emotional rapport, and that you're making your message as clear as possible for people to grasp instantly. Okay, you cannot just throw anything you like up there. It won't work, and it will probably backfire. So, how many of you are, are you familiar with visual attention and contrast and saturation? Yes, okay. So typically, the, vis the visual system um, first looks at areas of highest contrast on an image because it's got the most information. So typically, on a site like this, you've got a couple of competing elements. And remember that attention, we're going to look at this in a moment, rational, conscious attention is extraordinarily limited. You have a very narrow bandwidth within which to operate. So you have to spend that attention wisely. Now, first thing that you are likely to look at on the page will be the massive white on black you get. Okay, highest contrast, um, and then you will bounce towards the face. The primal system is engaged with faces, opportunities for the connection in our environment. When you reach the face, her mouth is open, she's smiling, her eye gaze is pointing back towards the text, and her ventral area is also pointing back towards the text. Now, in social situations, out on the street, if someone's standing looking up for more than a few seconds, what do you do? You look up. If they're looking up and they're pointing, there's more urgency, you're, you're really gonna look up a lot more clearly. So much research has shown that this is also the case online. So if you have an image, there's a couple of split tests that were done, where you've got copy on, let's say, in this case, on the right, and a face looking out, you'll scan the face, engage with it, but your eyes won't bounce to the copy. If you direct the gaze and pointing and the ventral area to that copy, you'll take that as a social cue and you'll look at the content. That's what she's doing. And then you've got the arrow and then the call to action. So you can use images to direct attention. You can also use it to create an emotional kind of ambiance, if you like. So, here it says, how to use social media so it doesn't overwhelm your life. That's the message. Verbal stuff, we take in a lot more slowly than visual stuff that's image-based. So, when you look at the image, she looks pretty uncomfortable, doesn't she? You know, her hands are tight to her body, she's looking away, she's got a funny expression on her face. You look at the image, and then you look up at the text, and then you read, overwhelm your life. That seems congruous. But, yeah, so, one of the weird things with body language, I don't know if you've had this, you go into a shop and there's a salesperson, they're trying to sell you something, and they're giving you a really great pitch, but something just is a bit off, it's not quite right. Do you have that? And often that not quite right but can't put my finger on it will be a sort of a cognitive dissonance between what they're saying and what their body is expressing. So you have to make sure that you orchestrate your, your content so that the images and the message match up and align really well. And you can test this. Okay. So basically, this is the true of, uh, true of any kind of content that you create, um, and these principles will apply throughout. Storytelling is a really interesting one. So storytelling is one of the oldest forms of communication. There are loads of people who talk about this. Um, but I want to give you an example of how to make another brand, another really banal, not particularly exciting product, quite exciting. So we saw before you have the Hoover with the puppies story before and after, yeah? This is a different way of creating a story. Is anyone here wearing corduroys? Oh, really not? Okay. I did this talk. You did. You have to check just like the stripes. I did this talk two weeks ago. My parents were both teachers. Uh, they're retired now, and um, and I had to I had to preface this because occasionally I put my foot in it. I said, "Oh, there are only teachers in the room." Hands up. I was like, "Are you wearing cords?" He's like, "Yes." Oh. <laughs> so basically, cords tend to be for me history and geography teachers, right? Or like you know, 
at university when you're in the course. They're not particularly sexy. They're not kind of, they're not erotic clothing, let's face it. So how do you make something really unsexy sexy? First of all, why would you want to? But anyway, they, they did want to. So this is Beta brand in the US, and they've called their brand of product Quarter Rounds. Now, Rory Sutherland, VP of Ogilvy in the UK, said that if you're going to get a product into a new market, it has to be familiar enough for it to get adopted. So if it's risky and novel because it's a new market, make it more familiar. If you're trying to create a familiar product um, and, and get it so that it's got you know, an increase in sales in a familiar market, make it more novel. So it's that beauty between novelty, something that's a bit exciting and new, and familiarity, yet it's safe, to find that marriage. So they've done this. So they're normally called corduroys. They've called them corduroys. You're like, that sounds familiar, but wait, there's something new. So you get onto the page, uh, you scroll down. I have a friend um, who's one of the only female tailors on Savile Row, and she assures me that this is not an actual term. So at the top it says, evil eye back pockets. Like, I'm sure that's not an actual thing. So you keep scrolling down, it's a bit odd, and then you read this. Finally, horizontal corduroy pants. Corduroys mesh evenly, lowering the average wearer's crotch heat index, CHI, reading by up to 22%. Now, gentlemen, did you know that you have a crotch heat index? No, you don't have one. They even give you like a bloody equation, FDCD half P. I don't know. Um, but the idea is that it reduces friction. And I asked the dude, I was like, have you ever worn these? And he was like, yes. I was like, did you notice any difference? He's like, no. So, you know, apart from maybe it's not as easy to start a fire by sticking a twig between your legs. I don't know. Anyway, the point is they've taken something, again, really banal and created a story around it so that you engage emotionally, engaging the emotional system. Right. I briefly touched on this. Images of faces are a great way to increase emotional rapport instantly. This is an amazing charity called Charity Water, and they have the most beautiful websites, high definition. And what you'll find is that they tell stories, they have headlines, a small amount of text, sort of headline stuff, and then they give you these beautiful high-definition high images, mostly of close-ups of faces. I dare you, challenge you to go to the site and not feel uplifted and moved to help them in some way. You can't not, unless you're a psychopath, in which case, possibly. But you're not. You're nice people. Okay, finally, the rational system. Right, so it is thought that the rational system is unique to humans. Now, given how many of you are related to the Cambridge University? or like work with, okay, a couple of you. It'd be interesting to find out if you knew about this. I read a couple of years ago that there was something that happened at Cambridge University where um, scientists gathered together and they wanted to propose a cetacean bill of rights. So people or personhood for things like whales and uh, dolphins. And one of the reasons for this was that they have things in the brain like spindle cells and mirror neurons in greater density relative proportion of the brain than humans, and they have very complex social structures, etc. So they are thought to be you know, rational creatures and certainly very complex. But they don't use the web, so we're going to ignore them for now. <laughs> right, so the, the rational system is where our higher cognitive functions happen, helps us to plan and to organize and to problem solve. Now, given that you are in software engineering, how many of you are good at mental arithmetic? Right, How, which one of you wants to be brave enough to try a little mental arithmetic task? I shouldn't do this in Cambridge, because you can get it in three seconds and there's going to be complete moot. So I'm going to get you to do... They are there, okay. Right, so you can just give me a number. I'm going to give you an equation. Very simple, probably, for you. Um, so 87 times 936. Go. But without using any devices? Nope. <laughs> so who of you are actually trying to work this out? Someone's got to work it out, okay. Should we put a bottle of champagne on? Give, a, give them another one and we'll... Give you another one? Okay, should I give you another one or are you still working on that problem? No, okay, I'll give you another one. I'll give you a simple one. So, um, I say simpler. 42 times 126. <laughs> times 126. Or closest number. <laughs> we could be here all day, people. <coughs> Who said that? 5,000. Very close. You're going to win it. 5,292. Yes. So, yes, basically. Is that <laughs> Well done. Bottle of champagne for the gentleman. Now, for you whizzes at this kind of stuff, doesn't matter how, well, some people are very naturally good at this. But during the time that you're working that out, 
Um, were you thinking about anything else? The chap who gave you the answer with the fabulous long hair. During the time that you were working out that equation, were you thinking about anything else consciously? Not particularly. Okay, so here's the thing that for those of us, whether we're really good at it or not very good at mental arithmetic, this is an exercise to show you that our rational conscious bandwidth, our attentional processing power, if you like, or RAM, or however you want to see it, is very limited. And it can only really think about one thing at a time. So like tax returns, they're so cognitively taxing, and then it depletes your glucose level, which is why you should make any complex decisions at the beginning of the day, because by the end of it, you're kind of, you're pretty screwed. So the rational system is severely limited. Thanks for the example. Okay. Social learning and innovation is also thought to reside in the rational system, as is language and abstract thought. So, bearing in mind that the rational system and the attention that we have to, to spend consciously is limited, one of the ways in which to target the rational system online, in products, sort of services, marketing, etc., is to enable people to post-rationalize the decisions that they've already made at a primal and emotional level. The reason I say this give you another piece of research to furnish this argument, is that there was some research conducted in people who had had brain lesions in the emotional processing areas of the brain. So they were damaged in the areas of the brain that were used to process emotions. And they were given a range of choices. So for instance, let's say, simple choice, tea or coffee. Now we're in the UK, we're not in the States, we drink both. So they would be able to say, these people with emotional uh, brain damage to the emotional centers, they would be able to list why it might be better, rationally, to go for tea or why it might be better, rationally, to go for coffee. But when they, were cho when they were tasked with making the choice, they couldn't choose. Why? Because emotions are the things that get us to make the active choice. That's the thing that spurs us to action. So if you're trying to get people to choose your product or service, there has to be some kind of emotional response. It's not enough just to rationalize. That provides a context. Action comes from emotion. So post-rationalization, you can do this by making people feel good about the decision that they've made. We like to feel like we make good decisions. So positive reinforcement, thanking your customers. Tell them, you made a great decision signing up, we're gonna give you X amount of you know, freebies and services, videos, resources, etc. You can also do product demonstration, um, which is very popular online. A good example of this is to combine some psychological principles to make it a lot more persuasive. An example here, Nasty Girl, which is a website for clothing for young women in the US. Provocative title. They use images of their customers that their customers upload and say, look, I'm looking amazing in this dress. And then they pick the ones that they want to represent their brand. And they showcase those customers on the site. So a couple of things happening here. Product demonstration, they're wearing clothes. But they're also implementing the strategy of social proof. If all my peers are doing this, then it must be good. The proof from my peers that this is a good action to take. So it kind of does several things at once, and that's the platform that they're using um, to, to enable that functionality. Okay, listing specs and product benefits. So this is going to the gentleman over there that was telling me earlier about having decisions to make with all this kind of stuff. Now, I will furnish this with a story. So, well, first I'll give you some research. So research found recently that boys, as young as the age of seven, exhibit research tendencies online more so than girls. Again, there's, you know, a bit of a distribution thing, so there are differences, but it suggests that possibly men tend to research more in general, perhaps because it's a biological or evolutionary thing. Now, I, I witnessed this on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't know if we've got this kind of split in the audience, but I had to buy a camera recently, and I had about 1,500 pounds to get it, which is quite a lot for a camera. For me, at least, it's a lot. I was thinking, right, what should I do? I could either spend hours doing research, which will bore me out of my brain, or I could spend my attention wisely, call up my friend who's an expert in video marketing and say to him, what's the best product to get with this budget? So I call up, I make Phil, Phil, what should I get? It's my budget, it's what I want to do. Brilliant, buy the Canon EOS 600D. Fabulous SLR lens, digital, blah, blah, blah. So brilliant, within five minutes, I'd spent one and a half grand on a camera, or however much it was. And I felt pretty good, so I carried on my work through my day, spent more of my attention, got, had a really productive time. My husband comes home that night and he's like, oh, so what did you do today? I was like, oh, really excited. I bought a camera for one and a half grand. It's brilliant. I'm so excited of what, what I'm going to be able to do with it. And he looks at me. Also, he's Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> Cultural differences. Um, so, so he's like, you spent what? Did you do your research? I was like, yes. I called up my mate Phil and he told me, and he's like, that's not research. I was like, look, he's got all this amazing amassed expertise that he's distilled so that I can make the perfect choice. That's perfect research strategy. 
goes, no, that's not research. So he spent literally from 6.30, it was five hours, 6.30 till 11.30 at night on his laptop reading this sort of stuff. You know what the punchline is going to be. So he gets to the end of the night and he's like, so I found the right product. I think I've got the right one for you. I was like, what is it? Is it the Canon EOS 600D? And he looks at me and his face dropped. <laughs> I was like, I knew that five hours ago. That's the one I got. So anyway, <laughs> just to highlight a personal story of differences in research methods of employing your rational brain to get a job done. However, you've got to appeal to both kinds of customers. So you've got people who tend to fall at that end, like him. I want to do all my research. And then people like me who just want to feel like we've done due diligence to make a quick decision wisely. Perfect example of how to cater to both audiences, especially if you're in something like software. List the headline specs, make it tabulated so that people like me can scan. It's the stuff that we recognize, looks kosher, I can make a decision quickly. Create tabs so that those of you who do know your stuff, who are experts in your field, who are highly conscientious and probably of the male persuasion, can dig deeper into the specifications. And if you create those two routes, then everyone's happy. Another thing that I want to do to bring back the idea of how the rational system is not particularly um, in the driving seat of human decision-making is this. Which product do they want you to buy? The one in the middle, why? It's bigger, yes, what else? Best margins for them? Well, we don't know because the enterprise doesn't even have a price. So it's, it's blocking you at the door, there's no number on the door, you're not gonna walk in it. What else is going on? You say gold, yes? Popular? Why is it popular? There's no static social proof. Um? Usually, but here it's not actually. Although they do have endorsements. Yeah, so, okay, so I'll pull out another couple of things. So, yes, it's in the middle. It's got a tag. Who said that? Yes, so it's kind of got almost like a tag, a winning banner almost. It's kind of done like you would get at podiums. Um, it's called, who said that? Yes, an identity level statement. We all want to think of ourselves as professional. Who doesn't want to think of themselves as pro? Um, it's not on the edges. Where's who said that? It's not on the edges? So you mean it's in the center? Interesting. Okay, so an area around risk. Very interesting point. Anyone else want to make any comments? Yes. See, you are all natural born psychologists. So I'm going to pull out some of the points and you've all identified many of them. So it's in the middle. Research shows that if we're going to buy stuff and we don't know which product to get, like nappies, I've never had kids, I don't know what nappies to get, I'll go into a store and I'll buy whatever is horizontally in the middle and vertically in the middle. It's a heuristic, a rule of thumb that makes the decision-making process simple because you don't like to spend attentional bandwidth. So online, it also applies. Reduced choice, one in the middle is the one that we typically go for. It's made bigger, so it's more salient. Visually, it's bolder. You'll hear all sorts of shit about color. Color is culturally incredibly specific when it comes to meaning, with the exception of two colors, red and possibly oranges, and blues. Now, reds and oranges tend to be highly arousing physiologically, so things like increased heart rate, um, breathing, blood pressure, etc., and it's associated with things like sex and violence. So essentially, you get kind of like a heightened response to that. Blue, on the other hand, is a lot more calming, creates feelings of trust, and is very soothing. Also, blue websites are perceived as loading more quickly. It does a weird thing to our perception of time. I know. So if you're creating products and you're selling it in areas of low, you know, broad, broadband speed, whatever, use blue. Um, also, weights. If I give you two five kilogram weights, this one's red, this one's blue, you'll think, you'll perceive the red one as being heavier. So there's all sorts of weird things that colors do to perception, which they shouldn't be able to do if we are purely rational. So anyway, so orange and red. You also have registration only takes 60 seconds. So they're reducing ambiguity. This is also a fantastic chat-up technique, which I have learned because I've studied a little bit of pickup artistry, uh, which is odd. But anyway, so if you go on, you know, up to someone in a bar and you say to them, I'm just on my way to a meeting or to meet X and Y and Z. I've only got two minutes. I'd love to take you out. Can I get your number? Or can I talk with you for a couple of minutes? Because you've framed it and chucked out the ambiguity. This person will only have to stay with you for a couple of minutes. They're much more likely to have their defenses dropped. So things like this, registration will only take 60 seconds. It's not going to be painful forever. The word pro, identity, 30-day free trial, and then upgrade. Did anyone notice the upgrade? They're going to get you to buy something. They've made another perceptual um, kind of subtle thing here. So on the right, you've got current plan. You don't have a current plan, but because the current plan is free, they can get you to feel as though you've already signed up by saying it's your current plan. And then it's only a next logical step to say upgrade. So you're like, well, I'm already committed somehow, but I never committed. But you're not thinking this rationally. You're thinking it sort of subconsciously. 
um, 30 days um, free, and there's no mention of money with exception for the charm price at the top. Charm prices are very strange. Any number that ends in .989997995 is a charm price because they get us to feel as though the thing that we're buying is good value. There's all sorts of weird stuff. Anyway, so these are a whole bunch of different psychological techniques in one sales page. But the thing that I think is really interesting that no one's mentioned yet is that the way that they've listed the, the benefits. My colleagues in the Netherlands conducted a study to see how rational we are when we're assessing the benefits of a product. Three conditions. Condition one, the top five rated benefits listed in bullet points. Condition two, the bottom five listed benefits in bullet points. And condition three was a control condition, a mix of all two. If we're rational, you one would assume, correctly, that condition number one with the five top listed benefits would convert better, would create an increase in sales. Nothing really happened. There was negligible effect. It was statistically insignificant. They changed one other thing. They changed the bullet points into ticks, and the increase in conversion rates soared. Why? Because there's a cultural inhabit sort of a, well, cultural um, learning that we've had when we're at school that ticks are positive, that they're good. It's for good behavior. It's a rewarding symbol or cue or signal. And just by changing that one thing, none of the content had changed, but they completely changed the way that people responded psychologically to the site. This is just to furnish you more evidence as to why the rational system is not entirely fabulous. All right, so I've given you a heck of a lot of information. These slides will be available. I want you now to tell me what you think are the psych principles at play in this video, and does it persuade you to buy the product? Excuse me, is your toothpaste working? Yeah, of course. Time for a quick check. Have a look. Bacteria. But I brushed this morning. Not with Colgate Total toothpaste. Bacteria are the cause of most common dental problems. Only Colgate Total is clinically proven to protect non-stop against all these eight problems. Try it and come back tomorrow. Let's see. Wow, where's all that bacteria? I'm impressed. New Colgate Total. No other toothpaste offers more complete protection for a healthier mouth. Colgate Total, the number one toothpaste brand used by dentists. Right, psychologists, what are they doing? What principles? Smiley faces, yes, great. What science, else? Science. Science based. What did you say? Science, science, okay, anything else? Okay, hands up because there's too much amazing stuff coming. Yes. Authority, number one, excellent. Quick test, framing it, excellent. The tick box, could you read the tick? Like, you couldn't read it though, it's too far. Loads of ticks, yes, excellent. Yes, so dentists use it, moving back to authority, but again, you know, sticking behind your... Yeah, this person, yeah, in the green shirt. How so? Yes, they're saying you will get this, these are the sort of the scientific results. And here you can see it. Excellent, yes? Low effort, quick results. Low effort, quick results. Big red screen, we're going to come to that, yes. <laughs> was she wearing red? Was she? Good point. Extra marks. Which is also why people do wear red lipsticks. And, yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. Brilliant. Okay, I hadn't noticed that, but that's a really, when it goes round, you see it in that shape. And even though, even though, I had not noticed that. Brilliant. Yeah. So here. It's a tick mark right there in the clock. Brilliant. I'd never noticed that. Yes. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So before and after, this will make you more attractive and sexually appealing to. Excellent. Primal system. What else? Social proof. Yes. Excellent. And at the back. Excellent. You guys are pros. Yes. It was in a busy place. So, yeah, we're going to come to that as well. For busy people. So identifying the cut. Well, I suppose the con the context of your customers. Excellent. They use a story. Yes. Anything else? Burning last comments. Quite slick. Like a business trust. So he's mirroring his business audience. Excellent. Any last burning things? Okay. Brilliant. Why not? Okay. Yeah. 
Pseudoscience. Pseudoscience. So let's run with that because this is the point that we have to make. And thank you for making that observation. The point with this video is it is packed chock full to the brim of psychological persuasion techniques. Would you buy it based on this video? No. This is supposed to be, you know, colgatetotal.co.uk. So let's talk about trust and let's talk about mirroring. That metro station that they walked into, does that look like a British metro station or an underground? No. Now your primal system is going, is this risky? Is this safe? Is it familiar or is it not? It's not familiar. It doesn't look like somewhere that you would be. The guy is wearing a business suit, so maybe he's mirroring his audience. When was the last time you went to a dentist who was wearing a business suit and had a Harry Potter wand to check your mouth? I mean, for fuck's sake, you just don't do it. He wasn't wearing a lab coat, there was no qualification. There's, you know, it's just completely alien. It's not safe, it's not familiar. Then you have the ticks, way too many ticks. We can only chunk down five to seven pieces of information. There are like eight or nine there, way too fast. The color red, it's, it's arousing, it's primal. Do you want to be thinking about things like blood and primal and arousing when you're using toothpaste? I don't. I want to be feeling fresh and minty and blue and green, right? So there's all of these different things, and you've got the authority, etc. Um, and they use the authority cue at the end with the lab coat, but it's a bit little too late. So all sorts of reasons. And this is really to show you that you can have all the psychological tools in the kit, but if you don't know how to deploy them in the way that fits the universal, cultural, and individual lenses or context of your customers, won't make a difference. You'll alienate them and they'll feel violated because it's manipulative. Okay, finally, being the authority. Um, I want you to tell me what you think, this, the one thing that you think this cosmetics brand is trying to do with the brand name and the clothes that the brand rep is wearing. At Clinique, we believe great skin can be created. Just take our quick skin consultation and we'll find a routine that's right for you. Yes, it's true. Your skin can be great skin. This will only take about three minutes if we do it together, or about a minute to do it yourself. Anytime you want to hear more or less about any question, just click the play and pause button below. I'm never offended if you want to turn me off, but remember, I'm always here to help. So, with or without me, just click to begin. Wouldn't that be a great option every time you had a date? I don't mind if you want to turn me off or on, you're like, flick a switch, very funny. Okay, so, um, so there's something in the air here, I'm sure it's just Cambridge. Um, okay, so what are the things that they would, what's the name of the brand for a start? Clinique. Does that sound cosmetic y or does it sound science y? Science y. And what's she wearing? A lab coat. Like, most people I show this to say it's not very persuasive, and yet we still buy this brand because we believe that it's scientifically more rigorous than the others. Now, researchers found that if I gave half of you down the middle a white lab coat, and I said, this is a white lab coat, and you're wearing that, and I gave you guys the exact same item of clothing, and I said, this is an artist smock, and I got you to do the same, you know what's coming, the same creative problem-solving task, you guys would outperform you guys. Why? because you're, you're performing as if your IQ is higher because you're within the schema of someone who wears a lab coat, who is therefore a scientist, who is therefore more... Oh, say again. Who said that? Oh, better results. Oh, okay, so if you're giving people... Um, so quantifiable problem-solving tasks. So you could even be like a maths task or a crossword, um, and you can quantify those results. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you can't, I mean, if it's qualitative, there's no way that, and it's all subject to. But thank you for clarifying. Yes, it would be something that's quantifiably uh, measurable between the two groups. Um, yeah, because otherwise, how do you measure IQ, right? So, yeah. Um, so they did that, and they found that actually it's not just the in, sort of enclosed cognition, which is how we perform differently depending on the clothes that we wear, which is totally weird, but it's also the associations that we have, the mental subconscious schemas that we have to do with that. Um, another interesting one for the women in the room, especially if you're in software or like a male-dominated industry, other researchers found, I think it was for a math test, if you get women to perform on a math test, they will do better in the condition where they're just writing down their name and then they start, versus the condition in which they're told to assign their gender to say I'm female, because you have social and cultural perceptions around female ability in those masculine fields. So just know that. And if you're educating your daughters, just let them know that these biases are totally weird so they don't fall prey to them. Anyway, key takeaways. So a bit tangent. So to be persuasive online in e-commerce, in marketing, in software design, anything like that, you have to target all three systems, which means that your message, your content, your website, your software should be primarily arousing. That's motion, whether it's risky or safe, sex, symmetry, um, 
It also needs to be emotionally effective. So it needs to create a story, tell a narrative, make it concrete and tangible. Create an emotional sense of what it is that you're helping people to do. And then finally, rational. It has to be intellectually compelling. But more than anything else, you have to enable your customers to post-rationalize the decisions that they've already made at a primal and emotional level. Here are some of my references, or all of the references, if you want to learn more. Um, you can tweet to me if you're too shy to ask me questions, and we are, I think, out of time. So do you want to come grab me during the break? Thanks for your attention. I hope you enjoyed that. We certainly did. Um, for more talks from Business Software Conference and other BLN events, visit thebln.com or come to our next event. You'll love it as much as we do.